Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the Car Tech Garage. Max, what's up? You know, just another week in history. I'm excited. You're always excited. Yeah, I am. Saturday morning, nice day out. Of course, I'm excited. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm actually going to go see a Reds game later, so I'm excited about that. Oh, are you really? Yeah. I didn't go last year, so. Nice. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad at all. I'm sure they'll do terrible because I'm there, but yeah. It's yeah, fine. well, yeah. So we, you know, I like sports too, yeah, not just the, cars. The curse of being a Cincinnati sports fan. That's, yeah, that's why I, I tend not to be one. Always <laughs> let down. It's fine. That's okay. Yeah, perpetually <laughs> let down. That's why we're so we're so tough mentally. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. All right. Yeah, let's go ahead, buckle up, take a ride through this week in automotive history. We'll kick it off July twentieth, nineteen oh four, hundred and seventeen years ago. This one's kind of important for some of you race fans out there. Probably all of them. Um, so there was this uh, club that was started, and it was started in Paris, France, and it was called the Association Internationale des Automobiles Clubs Recomes. Anyway, it meant the uh, International Association of Recognized Automobile Clubs. Um, so, yeah, that got founded. Now, I know it sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, but here's the important part, because this association was essentially designed to represent the interests of automobile owners as well as to oversee the growing international motorsport and racing scene back in 1904. So um, what they had ended up doing is, you know, while they kind of grow, grew and developed um, into, you know, being the sanctioning body that they are now today, they launched what was called the European Drivers' Championship in 1931. And of course, you know, they had all sorts of these races all over the, all over the world. And they would select different Grand Prix um, to be part of the Drivers' Championship. And then after World War II, upon resumption of motor racing, um, the AIACR was actually renamed the Fédération Internationale des Automobiles, or the FIA, the Federal International of Automobile. Um, so the FIA, of course, at this point is the sanctioning body for basically all major racing series that are across the world, including Formula One and Formula Two. In 1950, the FIA actually established all of those new racing categories, uh, among them, of course, Formula One and Two, and they created the very first World Drivers Championship, the Formula One World Drivers Championship. That's awesome. Yeah. So Sorry, cool. I, I got a little distracted. Cody, one of our coworkers, just sent me his custom exhaust that he's making with the supercharger and its Grand Prix. So sorry, yeah. I had to look at that. Yeah. I saw it. I blew up. And it's pretty neat. Yeah, he's got a Grand Prix so GTP. Shout out to him. Hopefully, he's having a good time. Oh, I'm sure he is. <laughs> yeah, it's a supercharged 3.8, but he got equal length exhaust manifolds. He's all about the Grand Prix. So it's going to totally change the sound of the engine. Now it's not going to sound like a pig anymore. No offense, Cody, if you hear yeah. this. Maybe we can get him to come on one day. Talk about the Grand Prix and maybe VR6. I don't know. I don't know. See, he, frankly, he knows too much. He does. He does. <laughs> it would just be Cody's podcast. I'm cool with it, man. I mean, you know, I, I certainly don't know any, everything, yeah. and it's always well, nice to have somebody else on here that knows the their stuff. Good news is the pictures are at 9 a.m., not 3 a.m., so <laughs> it must be not bad yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just wait till a few broken bolts happen. He'll uh, get a little bit of derogatory yeah. language coming and, his way soon. Anyways, sorry to, sorry to interrupt <laughs> on that, but you know, we love cars. June 21st, 1987, the Detroit Grand Prix was held, and it was won by Ayrton Senna. Ha! And uh, that's that's pretty much it. He was driving a, um, a Lotus 99T, which was one of the first cars to have like an active ride suspension, but they didn't quite perfect it. Of course, it didn't win the championship. Uh, Williams would later, in the early 90s, perfect that active suspension system. And, you know, basically become all dominating with Nigel Mansell winning. 
Um, but, but yeah, still a really cool car nonetheless and kind of paved the way for, you know, some of those active suspension cars to, to come into play. And now active suspension is commonplace in a yeah. lot of uh, higher end sports cars and luxury cars and even and normal trucks. cars. I mean, I mean, you see normal vehicles with them. Like I know a lot of the Chevy SUVs have, you know, active dampening and, mm-hmm. you know, electronic suspension. And that was something, you know, back then that was kind of high grade stuff. And now it's, it's on just your normal family car. Yep, yeah, it really was. All right, June 22nd, 1915, 106 years ago. Um, The name Volvo was officially registered as a brand name in Stockholm, Sweden. Now, it's an interesting story because Volvo in Latin means I roll, which was an appropriate name considering that the company that registered the name uh, was SKF. uh, The the name in in Swedish is Svenska Kulager Fabriken. Anyway, I'm, SKF. I'm now, she got SKF, that. <laughs> SKF actually still manufactures bearings to this day. Yeah, we we buy them. What, okay. We install SKF bearings into a lot of our European cars, in fact. Um, so they are still a bearing manufacturer today. But the cool part was they uh, obviously coined this term, I roll, again, appropriate for a bearing manufacturing company. And um, it all started with uh, one of the SKF employees. Um, in 1926, this guy named Asar Gabrielson basically was trying to campaign the board of directors of the company to produce a car because they were one of the, you know, the larger manufacturing firms in the country and they had the ability to produce automobiles. So this guy was really trying to lobby to get everybody together and try and convince them to produce a car. And they ended up succeeding together with his friend, Gustav Larsen, which uh, was an engineer who had actually worked for Morris in England. He came over and they finally obtained SKF's go-ahead and financial backing along with some factory space. And uh, they started manufacturing their own cars and they uh, granted them the ability to use the name Volvo. And that's how Volvo got its name. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Even yeah. though I'm not a huge fan of Volvos. <laughs> I just think it's a cool story. There's a couple of Volvos, you know, like some of the, the R models. Yeah. I've always liked the S60Rs, the old V70s. I, everybody loves a Volvo wagon, the Turbo 5 pot, that burbling noise. See, I laugh like 90% of the people that we work with all try to stray away from Volvos. And then what we have one tailor that loves them, absolutely loves Volvos, is yep. obsessed with them. Yeah. Just Until he gets one of the Volvos that's a Ford and then he hates Ford, which I think is hilarious <laughs> because <Yeah>. anyway, <laughs> it's hey, a, you know, I know for a little while the S60 was a Ford Fusion. Anyway, <laughs> FOMO Co, baby. FOMO Co. <laughs> it always cracks me up. <laughs> All right. June 23rd, 1991. You Le fans and you Mazda fans out there are going to be happy about this one because you know that the Mazda 787B won the 24 hours of Le Mans in 1991. And, of course, uh, Bertrand Gatschop, Johnny Herbert, and Volker Wiedler all – um, drove the car and raced it to the finish line. And its average speed over this whole thing was 183 miles an hour Jeez. over the entire 24, mi- 24 hours. Um, now, obviously, this is a rotary-powered Mazda, the first non-piston-driven engine to even win the 24 hours of Le Mans. And um, in stunning fashion, nonetheless, with a sound that will never be remembered if we can get a sound clip in here, that'd be super. Okay, so sound clip here. Yeah, Got Mazda it. 787B. Keep going. Four rotors, four rotors, and three spark plugs per rotor. Isn't that just it's awesome? Just a beautiful 12 sound. Twelve spark plugs, four rotors, and, you know, 9,000 RPM. 
Um, absolutely bonkers car. If you, if you don't know anything about the 787B, just hop onto YouTube, crank the speakers up to 11, and you know, really just piss off your neighbors with it. It's <laughs> See, it's funny is, you know, I've never really was around rotary engines. And I think we had one come into the shop. I think it was a, what was it, RX-7? Yeah, the old RX-7. Or newer. I think it was a newer. No, we did have an old one come in too. And I had never driven something like that. I had never experienced it, never really heard it first person. And I can understand why people really, really like them. And also some that are not so big of a fan. But when you get that just revving freeness it's i could see how it could be really fun exactly and in my always the thing i that was always impressed me about them is their power density mm-hmm. i mean like some of these rx7 it's a two rotor it's 1.3 liters of displacement and some of these guys out of 1.3 liters are getting well in excess of a thousand horsepower heavily turbocharged obviously tons of boost pressure different fuels and things like that but the fact that something that small can hold together with that much output is incredible and just comparing it to like a 1300 cc bike engine yeah you know like a hayabusa that that that's just even that turbocharged full to the brim a lot of those bikes are six seven hundred horsepower now granted i know there's exceptions (laughs) to the rule you know you can run all sorts of different fuels add nitrous um you know run it on a one and done routine where basically the engine's toast afterwards to extract as much so (laughs) I, i know that there's variables involved but you know, a lot of these guys back in the day in the nineties and, and still today, the ones that are still left on the road, these RX sevens are running around five, 600 horsepower. Um, you know, after being bridge ported and everything and, and big turbo, um, and they're able to run reliably for a long time. Yes, it is a fair amount of maintenance and you really have to know what you're doing when it comes to a rotary, especially one that's been modified that heavily, but they are a great engine, not efficient, but very power <laughs> dense and they sound awesome and, and they they're love fun to drive turbos. Oh, they love turbos because they produce so much exhaust gas that like even that 1.3 liter can just spool a huge snail. Kind of love it. Snail. <laughs> June 24th, 1900, taken away back 121 years ago, Mr. Oliver Lippincott. Isn't that a funny last name? You're just picking all the great <laughs> names today. <laughs> he became the very first motorist to drive his vehicle, and it was a, a steam locomobile, um, into Yosemite National Park. And Lippincott would start a trend with his visit. Um, you know, of course, as, as automobile owners increasingly chose to drive to national parks, um, you know, obviously uh, avoiding riding on the back of a horse or something like yeah. that. And I kind of think that maybe even this Oliver Lippincott guy might be in a large part responsible for creating kind of the unique culture that is people driving to national parks. I mean, that that's something that's kind of unique to the United States mm-hmm. is families loading up in the car and going to these parks and enjoying nature in their own personal automobile. And uh, this guy may have been the very first to do it. So I just like the name. Was it locomobile? So locomotive kind of mixture. I'm sure they didn't know Spanish at the time, but <laughs> definitely sounds loco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and looking yeah. at the picture you have, say the last the last name Lippincott is loco. Yeah, you know, and just the whole idea. But hey, he paved the way. Yep. Yes, he did. No well, pun intended. actually, he did not. No. Well, he didn't he, pave he it. He blazed the trail. Steamed, there we go. Okay. He blazed <laughs> the trail. Steamed the trail. Steamed the trail. Steam cleaned it for everybody. All right, we're done with that one. Oh yeah, <laughs> terrible jokes. Terrible jokes today. June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy two. Um, Richard Petty lapped the entire field at Texas Motor Speedway. I know some of you guys have been uh, messaging me and, and asking for a little bit more uh, NASCAR history. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and obviously you can't go through pretty much any era within the last 30 years of NASCAR racing without talking about Richard Petty, 50 mm-hmm. years actually. Um, it, it, the King has the name the King for a reason. Now I know that, you know, the, the odes to the Hemi engine and all that stuff and unfair advantage and this and that. But the fact is the guy could drive and, um, lapping the entire field, even if you are in a slightly better car, um, it is still no, no easy feat leading 186 out of the 250 laps. Um, and of course, second finisher runner up was Bobby Allison. One lap down at the end, a whole lap. That's crazy. That's just impressive like that. You don't see that unless there's, you know, an accident or, you know, some kind of caution flag or something that sets up the field to become, you know, distance. Yeah. yeah. That's the king could drive. And and it ran in his whole family. Um, His dad, (laughs) Lee Petty. It it was always such a funny story to me that I can't remember what race it was, but in one of Richard Petty's first races, he was still on the actual NASCAR circuit with his dad, Lee Petty. And there was one race where his dad came up on his bumper and pit maneuvered him (laughs) to win the race. He took out his own son to win the race. That's called being competitive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Blood is boiling. Hey, if there's one person to do to, I, I could understand this, this perspective. I wonder Gotta how win. Thanksgiving was around their house. Oh, I'm sure there, that maybe. was not a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't know. All right. June 26, 1930. Um, Mr. Frederick Henry Royce was knighted by King George V. Now, you guys are like, what the hell is that? Anyway. Henry Royce, you guys might have guessed it by now, Rolls-Royce, get the connection? Yeah. So, Charles Stuart Rawls, that was the other guy. So, Henry Royce and Charles Rawls um, weren't really friends, uh, you know, per se, until they kind of became business partners. Um, the, The story goes that Henry Royce was an exceptionally talented engineer, brilliant uh, beyond the means that he was given as a child, didn't really have um, a very wealthy upbringing by any means, you know, no significant financial backing, nor did he have the high class education that some of his more wealthy peers, um, you know, were able to go through. But he did have an incredible attention to detail and that really shown in the cars that he ended up producing. And when he met Charles Rawls. Charles Rawls was a, a great marketing genius, mm-hmm. and he was able to market and sell the cars that Royce was designing, and they just made a great team. And um, the the engines that Henry Royce had um, actually developed uh, powered Allied planes in World War One, and then in World War Two, engines built by the firm made a huge contribution to the war effort. You know, they powered like Spitfire airplanes and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, in, in the battles, but. Um, it's still just, it, it's to me, it's just funny hearing you say that, you know, their basis did not come from money or luxury or, you know, higher education. And when you think of a Rolls Royce in today's terms, you think of a lot of dollar yeah. signs behind it, very sophisticated, very uh-huh. sleek, and just the upper epitome. tier. Yeah, people own the you. Echelon, don't, yeah. yeah, not just the normal person has a Rolls Royce sitting in their garage. That's, that's not how it is at all. So that's kind of, you know, ironic that that's where that background came from. Exactly. But his, his attention to detail and his, his passion and his care really made some of the best cars of that era by far. Um, and the thing is, you know, Rolls Royce, um, the other funny part was, it was never really considered a race car, 
but the engines that they made were just so powerful um, that they several that they actually set several world speed records um, and a lot of cars driven huh. by by Sir Malcolm Campbell and once again um, another guy who got knighted <laughs> by by British royalty. Okay. Um, once again, you wouldn't think of a Rolls Royce being you know one of the fastest cars or having a fast Rolls Royce <laughs> Rolls Royce aero engine putting putting it in something that has wheels and propelling it down a salt flat. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> but the uh, company started in 1906. He'd actually developed a, a couple of other things earlier than 1906 and, and actually started his, his engineering firm in the late 1800s. But um, he started building cars in 1906. Um, and of course, you know, now the marketing or the automotive firm is owned by BMW AG, um, the aircraft division still operates separately from them though. So they still okay. build planes. I think for, for a period of time, they might still be the, the largest, um, manufacturer of personal aircraft oh. uh, engines okay. ever. Um, somebody can probably tell me I'm wrong on that. That's fine. But <laughs> anyway, take your word for it. <laughs> that is this week in automotive history. I think it's about wrapped up and I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Those who do listen to us every week, um, it's, you know, just so cool to be able to come in here and talk about cars and have somebody listen because <laughs> my wife's tired of hearing it. <laughs> you and me both. We're on the same boat there. All right, guys. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>